This is Schlachthof 5. 5 is English 5. Schlacht is slaughter. Hof is house. Schlachthof 5. Slaughterhouse 5. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. And I'm James. And this time we're actually not joined by Colin, because in true Billy Pilgrim fashion, he said, you guys go on without me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because this time we are picking up a listener suggestion, and uh, the listener is Emmanuel Dubois, and the book is Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut from 1969, which was adapted into a 1972 film. So we're going to be discussing that, and Emmanuel was kind enough to join us for a discussion. So, thank you for joining us. Bonjour. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's a pleasure. Uh, you are our first Canadian guest, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and first, uh, French, first French-Canadian as well. Yeah. It could prove interesting, different cultures and all that. (laughs) Yes, yeah, definitely. Yes, so uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about yourself. Yes, well, I'm actually a camera store manager here in Montreal, but I've been a geek for as long as I can remember, uh, even even though I got into sci-fi novel quite uh, recently, I would say, like in the last couple years. It's not something that we read a lot in uh, French schools. Uh, we read more uh, French classics. Uh, you were reading for like 451 when I was reading, you know, uh, Three Musketeers or something like that. Um, right. <laughs> so that's why I got late to it. I actually found you guys through uh, the You Goes There podcast. Uh, Oh, okay. uh, when I was reading uh, oh, cool. science fiction, I wanted to find a podcast because one day I was reading Neuromancer and I was not getting it. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I wanted to right. find a discussion <laughs> about that from yours. And uh, from there, I found Take Me to a Reader. Nice. Yeah, I I didn't really get Neuromancer either. I remember that. So th- that helped me <laughs> build some self-confidence into my sci-fi readings. Okay, I'm not the only right. one. <laughs> well, so so you, you said you've been a nerdy type for a while. What's your... Um What's your nerdy passion? I mean, if it's if it's not science fiction books. Uh, well, it it would be movies. I'm a big cinephile. Um, okay. Uh, then, as you as I mentioned uh, to you before, I'm an historian. At, I originally wrote a master thesis on the origins of World War II. Um, mm. So I did cool. study a lot of you know uh, the war itself, the origins of the war, the equipment and all that. So that's why I was drawn to Star Wars Five because you know it mm-hmm. has both that science fiction. A thing and the historical thing together, and it was very appealing to me. Yeah, nice. All right, well, uh, why don't we start talking about the book? James, is this your first time reading it? This is my first time reading it, actually. All right, um, and what did you think? I had heard about it, I don't know, forever, right? I don't know, I think I was, if I had read it in school, it would, it would have been a very long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, I knew about the book and all that stuff in the movie. I just, I, I don't think I've ever actually read it or watched it, is all. Okay. Um, but I actually did like the book. Uh, I appreciate. I like the the premise, and I I actually did like the characters. I wasn't sure I would at first with Pilgrim. He's very uh, kind of a boring character, except that his surroundings are interesting. Yes. <laughs> so that was fun, and I, I I liked the premise and the the menagerie of it. I guess I, it totally reminded me of like uh, the menagerie episode of of Star Trek, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So I thought I thought it was a good book, well written. Um, I I like the themes of it. I actually learned a little bit about the surrounding of Dresden, how, uh, assuming it's factual. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize you know, that many people had actually died in that. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the rest of the catastrophe of Dresden. I just didn't realize that many people had actually died in it. Yeah. Um, and you said so, Emily has actually been to Dresden, right? Yes. 
she went there on a uh, field trip when she was studying abroad in London for her uh, master's degree in East Asian art history. Nice. What about you, Emmanuel? Yeah, it was also the first time I read the book. I've heard about it since I began reading science fiction. It came quite fast on, you know, reading lists, must must read and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I read it this summer and I thoroughly enjoyed it for the writing style. I mean, it's one of the few books that I've read that mm-hmm. is non-linear and yet never lost me. Uh, right. they, tend, they tend to do that uh, so mm-hmm. it's you know it proves that the writer renew what he was doing and uh, he had something to say not just make a story that is all over the place for the sake of being all over the place you know he had a point by doing right. this <laughs> yeah and the movie also it was the first time I watched it uh, even though I read about it it's, it was an interesting production and I, I think it was the first American movie to win the Palme du Festival de Cannes you know the Cannes Festival in France which mm-hmm. is a big movie award. I think it was the first non-European movie to win at that festival. So it was something. Huh. Yeah. Nice. It won the, uh, the jury prize, right? I think so. Something like that. Maybe the jury prize. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. This, um, this is one I read back in 2010. I think it was kind of like you where I was, I was reading science fiction novels and looking for classics. And it was one that kept coming up and it showed up for cheap on, on the nook, I believe. Um, and so I, I bought it and read it and I thought, well, that was, Strange. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually wanted to, um, to pull up. I blogged about it way back in the day. Bear with me a second. What's this? Um, one of the books that was on like the ban list way back when, what, along with you know like Fahrenheit 451 and stuff. Yeah, you, it, you it is that? one that's been frequently uh, banned. Yeah, I, I I thought I heard that, heard that, but I in reading it I don't really understand why, except maybe the anti-war theme, I guess, but. Well, yeah, and I, I think it, the reason that it's banned in schools is because some of the language. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Okay, it could be the relationship with the uh, porn star too. Yeah, probably. Right. <laughs> I'm immune to those kind of things. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So when I when I blogged about it, I said, for those who know absolutely nothing about the book, it's semi autobiographical in that it has scenes, no better way to describe them, from Vonnegut's experiences of POW during the firebombing of Dresden in World War II. But it's also a science fiction story, following the protagonist, Billy Pilgrim, on his skipping through time from his pre capture days after the Battle of the Bulge to his captivity in Dresden and earlier, to his late life as a widower and general crazy person, to his captivity and display in the <laughs> zoos of the planet Tralfamador. Trelfam- so. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case anybody hasn't read it, that, that's uh, that's what this book is. I recall laughing when I read that on your blog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, um, so it goes. It's it's definitely an odd. Yes, so it goes exactly. It's definitely an odd book. <laughs> the fascinating thing that I caught when listening to another podcast talking about this book was that even though it is nonlinear and it keeps jumping around, the story of his experiences in the war proceed in chronological order. It doesn't mm-hmm. jump back and forth in those. So that True. is the through line. And I thought that was interesting. Right, it's like the cement of the whole book, mm-hmm. uh, because everything basically derives from his experience in the war. Yeah. So I'm curious. I mean, we'll just kind of start talking about uh, freeform discussion about the book. I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it the first time I read it. And that's what my, my blog post was kind of my processing it. The second time I read it was mm-hmm. when my son had it assigned for school. And I kind of had made it a, a goal that Anything he's assigned, I'm going to read as well in case he needs to 
nice. talk about it. Um, but I enjoyed it a lot more the second time, just kind of knowing going in what it was. It's my only experience with Vonnegut. Have, have either of you read other Vonnegut? Uh, not yet. No. Uh, but I do plan to read uh, Sirens of Titans. I have the book at home and Breakfast of Champions. Uh, mm. They both seem like interesting books. Yeah. I have uh, Cat's Cradle, and I'd like to read that. And we have another request uh, from Michael Simshauser for Harrison Bergeron, which is a short story that my wife has actually read. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. What about you, James? Breakfast of Champions is another adaptive one I came across when I was like reading about Slaughterhouse on uh, IMDb. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, to the book, though, uh, two points that come to mind. Go for um, I agree with Emmanuel about the narrative. I, li- I like, even though it's um, jumping back and forth in time, it still like progresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't you don't get lost in the narrative, even though it it is jumping around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, I thought that was cool. Uh, and then um, <laughs> this one was so when I first came across the name of the planet Trafalmador, mm-hmm. yeah, I I was like kind of like thinking about how to pronounce it as I was reading it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For some reason, like saying it with an Italian accent came to my mind. So every time I read it throughout the book, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. And then I went and had, had to go eat some pasta or something. Some exactly. Yes, it sounds delicious, whatever it is. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a fantastic Italian dish. <laughs> it does. Buenissima. You know. See. Yeah. Another interesting thing about the book is that it starts with a chapter that would normally be like a foreword or a preface to a book, but it's called just called chapter one, and it's where Vonnegut right. is more or less talking yeah. about the process for creating the book. And, you know, an argument that he got into with, with someone who, who thought, oh, this is going to glorify the war, and John Wayne yeah. is going to play Billy Pilgrim in the adaptation, <laughs> and he's like, nope, that's not going to happen. Yeah, and it's actually the basis for the uh, subtitle of the, of the book, uh, The Children's Crusade, uh, right. mm-hmm. said in that first chapter. Right. That I found very... Uh, very interesting that you would put an actual event from his own life as part of the book. As you say, it's not an introduction; it's the first chapter. It's part of the part of the story. So it was yeah. something quite unusual, I would say, especially in science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you might think that if somebody was going to write autobiographically like the, like this, that they would put themselves in as the title character, the main character. Instead, we have Billy Pilgrim, who's kind of a cipher, um, kind of a, just a strange, nondescript man. Um, and then occasionally in there, it'll say, oh, by the way, that was me, that guy right there in the background who said something. <laughs> yeah, so. and he does have a couple more like cameos, like Kilgall Trout is mm-hmm. him, basically. Uh, so I find it interesting. He has like three, two, three ways to basically be in his own book. Yeah. Now, I had, uh, I had heard someplace that Kilgore Trout was a reference to Theodore Sturgeon, who's another mm-hmm. science fiction author. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let, let me ask you this, because, and, and I do want to get in some of Colin's perspective. He didn't, he didn't want to come in here. He did not like the book. He did mm-hmm. not like the movie. And, you know, he felt like just coming in here and crapping all over it was not going to be good podcasting. Um, <laughs> and so he's like, nope, I, I just, I'm not. And, uh, and I respect that. That's fine. But uh, we were talking about it. We, we talked about it over the last couple of weeks while he w- was reading it and I was reading it. And... He said, well, it's not even science fiction. It's just the ravings of a crazy person. And so I did want to talk about that um, because I think that is one reading of the book that at some point he cracked up from a combination of post-traumatic stress, possibly the airplane crash, and Mm -hmm. putting his own mind back together formulated the entire 
alien abduction thing uh, and and his being unstuck in time. It did seem like they kind of alluded to that in the book. Yeah. Uh, to his daughter, yes. Particularly after, right, mm-hmm. particularly after the, the plane crash, uh, when, when he started to, to voice his experiences more, they kind of alluded to, maybe this is just, you know, he's... He's crazy. His mind broke yeah. after a combination of things, starting with the war through to the uh, ultimate, you know, uh, the plane crash damage to his brain kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and with Montana, uh, yeah, that was her name, right? Yeah, Montana, the porn star. Mm-hmm. He he had prior experience with her. Well, I guess watching her, right? Um, right. So he, he was aware of her. He knew who she was. And so to have her in the zoo as well, uh, it kind of lends to being him in his imagination yeah. because it wasn't some uh, completely new character we were introduced. Mm-hmm. We, we were, we were introduced to a character he had prior knowledge of, I guess, yeah. experience with in some form. Yeah. So I, I want to pull on this thread just a little bit and, and figure out where we come down on if we think it's just the ravings of a lunatic or <laughs> if the book is telling us that this really, these experiences really happened to him. Um, what do you think, Emmanuel? I do think that it's all uh, a setup to explain what happened in his own mind. Uh, uh, it's true that it's not... I agree with Colin in the fact that it's not an actual science fiction story that the character had this and this happen to him. It's a probably mm-hmm. happening in his, in his own mind. Um, but I would not say it's the, uh, the story of a crazy person. It's more intricate than that. I think he's really trying to make a point about yeah, PTSD, the war, and what it does to people. Um, mm-hmm. But in a way that will affect you from the inside, if you will. Instead of telling you this, this, mm-hmm. this happened, he uses this setup to basically show you what it does to a mind, which is not an easy thing to do, I believe. So I agree yeah. with Colin, but I actually like that he did that. <laughs> Contrary yeah. to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and I do as well. And I'm not totally sure that I come down on the side that like the alien abduction did not happen. Um, but I think there is plenty of evidence that it that it didn't happen. And one of the pieces would be um, when you start learning about Kilgore Trout, who's an interesting character. Um, he's the worst science fiction author of all time who, who <laughs> has never sold any books. Um, <laughs> he's shocked to find that he actually has a fan. He received one letter he thought was from a crazy person who Billy Pilgrim <laughs> happened to be in the hospital with. Mm-hmm. Um, and several times in the book, it talks about, you know, it gives you just a uh, inside flap idea of what happened in a book, you know, Jesus too, or, um, what was what was the one with the robot with the bad breath? Uh, gutless wonder, and um, one of them it said that the premise was that a man was held in an alien zoo with like an adult film star or something. And I thought, okay, well that's interesting. That if if the crazy person idea is, or if the you know his mind fracturing uh, idea is true, then you can see where he pulled that bit of it from mm-hmm. from his reading of of the Kilgore Trout novels. I guess to, to to continue with your thread, um, I think you could go either way with that. Yeah, because he he sets up multiple allusions to both scenarios. I, I guess in the book, mm-hmm. which which in my mind gives the reader flexibility in what they want to relate to in the that's what was, yeah, That's why we're gonna say. Uh, yeah. That's why it meant by I mean when I said that it's a book that really goes into it shows you what happened in, into your mind and that's. That also goes. It goes both ways. You, know, you could interpret it in two different ways, and I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, and there should there should not be. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Right. Right. I, and I generally agree about that in in literature that there shouldn't be a right answer, and an author should never come by and say that's the correct interpretation. I 
I don't like that. <laughs> so this is where we miss Colin because he'd be like, nope, you're wrong. Where I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> oh, the, the other thing. So I, I wanted to mention this time to review this. I happen to have the Audible uh, book, and I don't recommend it. It's not a good huh. one. Uh, it's read by James Franco, who does not do a tremendous <laughs> job. It sounds like it was recorded in a broom closet or something. Um, and <laughs> and he mispronounces the word uh, cavalry. He says cavalry, um, which is not the same thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it kind of bothered me a little bit. But you know. Other than that, it, it was a fine way to review the material. But then I also noticed that our library had a graphic novel of it, which actually just came out. In it September. just came out, yes. Yeah, yeah. And oh, so, so I read really? that just over the last couple of days. Um, and it's a really, really good adaptation of it, really good That's kind neat. of encapsulation of it. And one thing that stuck out to me when I was reading that was when he's in the, I don't know, he's like an adult bookstore or something, where, where he, he ends up buying a bunch of the window dressing of the Kilgore Trout novels. Mm-hmm. There's a magazine that shows... Um, Montana Wild Hack, and it says, you know, what happened to Montana Wild Hack, and so you could kind of go, okay, so now he's going to take the fact that she disappeared and add that into his mm-hmm. story. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward yeah. to reading the graphic novel. I ordered it, but they were out. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> hey, James, I can hand it off to you if you want to look at it. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, what was the um, art style? Um, it's pretty typical graphic novel kind of stuff. Okay, all right. The we, we haven't mentioned so it goes. Um, other than I think I think uh, Manu, I think you said it at some point, but uh, that's the phrase that evidently comes from Trafalmador, where that's the way they talk about death, right? That that's just this is a thing that happens, and it doesn't matter so because there's all these other mm-hmm. moments um, where the person's not dead, and I don't know how many times it's repeated in the novel, but it's even used for metaphorical death because at some point he's going on a radio show and they're talking about the death of the novel. And someone, someone says like you know the, the novel is dead, and then it says so it goes. Yes, it's it's something I found very interesting about the Trafalgarians. Um, mm-hmm. They seem to be seeing they, they see everything at the same time, but they always see the positive right. thing about it. You know, it's like they're from the Monty Pythons. You know, they always look at the bright side of life. Uh, right. they, <laughs> I, I have a quote here that I found interesting. Is they say at one point um, that's one thing. Earthlings might learn to do if they tried hard enough. Ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of the philosophy of the book. You know, yeah. horrific things can happen to you, but it doesn't mean that you have to concentrate on, uh, only on those. Right. Yeah. You don't have to be ruled by those. Yep. Exactly. I, yeah. Right. I wanted to mention a number of years ago, I listened to an audiobook by a woman named Jill Price. Um, the the book is called The Woman Who Can't Forget, The Extraordinary Story of Living with the Most Remarkable Memory Known to Science. This is a woman who has essentially a 100% clear autobiographical memory. And so she will remember hmm. everything that happened to her. Hmm. Um, she doesn't necessarily remember everything she reads or watches on, on television, but everything that, that happens to her personally. Like she'll remember if you give her a date, she can tell you what she was wearing on that day. And she talks about kind of the way her memory works is almost like that. Trafalmadorian idea where it's all there in front of her. And she said the tough part about it is, is she can't forget like bad breakups or really bad mm-hmm. arguments that she had with people or times that she was insulted or, or, or humiliated. And um, so, yeah, she would have to kind of take that to heart to try to remember just the good times. It's, it's also an idea that you find in what's in more recent works, like in the movie, the arrival, you have the yes. same concept of knowing that, 
and small parenthesis, I always enjoyed when you three try to say uh, Denis Villeneuve. It's a yes. <laughs> <laughs> you did a fur jump. Um, <laughs> if you need any help with that in the future, you can call me. <laughs> but did yeah, you thank uh, me for effort. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> That's, it's okay. I, I hear a lot of people say Villeneuve, and uh, I, I've heard Villeneuve, which is about the worst yeah. thing you can say. But yeah, it's I know that this sound uh, is hard to say for in English. Anyway, uh, but you have the same concept uh, of yes, you have all the time happening at the same in front of you at the same time and you your you know what your choices are going to be in the future but just don't make them because they have to be made uh right. the terrafamal dorians they know uh can we can we spoil everything at this point by the way yeah, so yeah we always yeah. um oh yeah they um they say that they know when the universe is going to end but we're not going to do anything about it it's, it's just the way it has to be and uh, yeah. and uh, you, program is like, but you could stop it. Yeah, but no, it, we just he already did that. He will do that. He did yeah. that. He does that. You know, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Have either of you watched Devs on Hulu? No. Nope. Yeah. Okay. So there's there's definitely there's a thread of the idea of of free will or like the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics there, and part of it is mm-hmm. that one of the characters wants to, and it's a light spoiler. One of the characters rejects the many worlds idea because if we live in a deterministic universe, then he could not have made choices differently than he made. And, and one key choice that, that he made led to something tragic. Um, and I feel like there's something of that here in this book where Billy Pilgrim mm-hmm. has gone through all these experiences and seen these horrible things. But if you think of it as things that had to happen, it makes it a little easier. Because it's there's nothing you could have done to change it, mm-hmm. and that that's where like if I want to go with the interpretation that he is just kind of a nutter, <laughs> that when he got you know he chartered the plane that his father-in-law was on that that all these other optometrists were on that everyone died but him, and that's mm-hmm. that's the kind of survivor's guilt that could happen where you're like okay that was my fault, but if it was determined then it's not his fault. And he was actually coming here to Montreal, so that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So don't take a plane for it to come here. (laughs) It's cursed. (laughs) Yeah. So it seems like you're the deterministic world or universe wouldn't, or is counter to the multi world, right? It does. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you're deterministic, you 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 free will is then just an illusion, I suppose. (laughs) Well, yeah. You can you can harmonize those two and say sure there's many worlds and in all those different worlds different choices have occurred but in mm. any one of them they're still determined well no because i guess okay. then there are uh, actual decisions uh, right that spin off the, yeah. the new right. universes yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly nope, you're right <laughs> yep. as you've done before i defeated myself <laughs> the the idea of the the book being anti-war we should probably discuss about that mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like there's there's ample evidence that it definitely is, um, and there's there's ways that mm-hmm. he uses it that way. Um, but I want to open it up to you guys. Well, I would say it's more a big analysis on trauma and PTSD than an anti-war novel per se. Uh, it is anti-war, but it's it's kind of an example to be used to analyze this. It's not only the point of the... It's not even, I think, it's not even the main point of the book. It's a big part of it, that's for sure. But I don't think 
it has to be considered only as an anti-war novel. It, I think it mm -hmm. goes actually deeper than that, and I do think that you have to read it like two, three times to actually acknowledge everything that it is and that it brings to to the reader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, so I feel like it's not overtly um, anti-war. What I feel Ivanovich's doing is illustrating the type of atrocities that occur in war, and that's why we shouldn't conduct war in that manner. Yeah. Because you're just you're losing these people, you're losing these cities, these culture, and all that potential of those people it, it disappears in the blink of an eye or a mm -hmm. shot of a bullet. Uh, you know. And the absurdity yes. of it. Is, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And even on the you know you're you're talking at the macro level kind of, but even down on the micro level, all the the small atrocities that happen. You know the 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 person mm -hmm. dying mm -hmm. of gangrene because someone decided to take their boots. Hmm. Um, right or people dying on yeah the, the, the whole gamut yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Because, because people don't ever hear about the guy on the train dying of gangrene because of his boots are gone yeah they hear about firebombing of dresden but we don't hear about the personal experiences that ruin their life mm -hmm. and yeah or the old pilgrim's friends that gets shot because he's he's told with a teacup or something um, yeah, <laughs> in in a bomb city where it did not matter at all. So yeah, the absurdity of it right. all is very consistent in the book. You know? yeah. yeah, that that scene in the movie was just killer for me. Mm -hmm. uh, he ended up just the Nazi officers threw it away. I'm like, yeah. what? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> which I get is not the point. Mm -hmm. Ceiling's the point, mm -hmm. but I was just like, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I like the way the book it tells you about it right away, right? About poor old Edgar Derby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that, that he's eventually going to be shot for this. and um, So it goes. Yeah, so it goes, pretty much. He, In terms of the anti-war thing, one of the one of the more kind of on-the-nose bits that I saw, um, because he's writing this novel during the Vietnam War, and one thing that was used in mm -hmm. Vietnam was napalm, and he, mm -hmm. in that story about Gutless Wonder, who's the robot with the really bad breath, who, once he cures his bad breath, uh, people like him, which is <laughs> just weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he mentions that the you know that the robots had dumped uh, jellified gasoline on on people, but they were just robots. They didn't know any better. They didn't have consciences, and um, so he's using that to poke at the fact that hey, human beings, you're doing this to each other, and you do have consciences. And Agent Orange, I forget that one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It, and he always it seems like he uh, he always brings back the stuff in the war to kind of the pointlessness and brutality of it. Um, he when they get to the camp with the British guys who are all very, um, you know, stiff upper lip and, Hey, you need to make sure that you shave and exercise and <laughs> still very Monty <yeah>. Python. <laughs> it, it sure did. Yeah. And, um, yeah. he, they were fantastic. It, but in that part, he mentions the fact that the soap is probably made from the fat of liquefied Jews and gypsies. So it goes, you know, and I don't find also, he, he makes a point when he illustrates how, but a soldier pilgrim is is like he has no place in the war. He should not be there, and right. he survives. And the good soldiers die, and it's completely yeah. random. Uh, yeah. You could be the best soldier in ever, but if a drums if a bomb mm -hmm. drops on you, you're dead. Even though you're the best yeah. soldier ever, so it's part of that whole uh, business of everything being chaotic and there is no responsibility in war uh, for just soldiers. You know, you're, you're there and. You know, you're going to live, you're going to die, you have no control over it. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite bits is when he is watching a movie that's showing a bombing of a city happening, and he experiences it in reverse, uh, Billy Pilgrim does, and so he sees that the um, the fires all gather up into metal 
tubes, metal mm-hmm. containers, and the planes come along to suck them into their holds and then fly yeah. them back across the sea and, and land. And then the, the bombs are carefully dismantled and the oars are put back in the ground. And, um, <laughs> and I, I just think that it's, it's just kind of beautiful. Yes. If I have one complaint about the book, I didn't like how many times he referred to the fact about how fat Billy Pilgrim's wife was. I thought, okay, I mean, you could just say unattractive. <laughs> Yeah, for 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 the record, from what I've I've heard a couple of, uh, podcasts about Fanagut's work, and female characters are an issue. Uh, definitely, you know, he, he has a way of handling females that is not flattering, and they're like yeah. blood devices. But it's, it's you know they're they're very um, uh, you know they have one facet. There is no depth to the characters. There's mm-hmm. one. This woman is like yeah. this. And that's it. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though the scene when she drives to the hospital and the way she dies is fantastic, especially in the movie, <laughs> the actress is very good, <laughs> and yeah. the whole scene is yeah. well made. But yeah, the the idea is is quite as dark as it is funny. But yeah, mm-hmm. the, the the character definitely is you know not great. Yeah. I did think that was a crazy way for her to go. Yeah, <laughs> so pretty, that was pretty wild to me. I'm like. I didn't think this was even possible. Right. <laughs> it was. It was. Yeah. It was just a novel type of death for me. Yeah. I like when the daughter gets to the hospital. How's my dad? Well, he's fine, but your mother died. What? Yeah. Brutal. And the daughter too is kind of a you know uh, one level character. She she always gets uh, angry at her dad. Uh, and we get mm-hmm. why. I mean, he is clearly nuts, and it drives her nuts. But yeah, she, she it's like she cannot understand what he's going through. Uh, and she's his daughter. She she should. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like there is no depth to that person. Uh, mm-hmm. So that you know, it doesn't help the female. Yeah, but by contrast with the brother, where you have an entire kind mm-hmm. of he evolves uh, story arc. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, he, he evolves from yeah the hooligan to straight laced you know green beret. Mm-hmm. Superstar, so yeah, it's a good point. I I had not thought about that. <laughs> I was thinking about the you know the perspective that Billy Pilgrim claims to have, right? Where he can he can see different times, and so when in those times when his son was a junkie, he could see the future. Okay, he eventually gets it together, mm-hmm. and that could be encouraging. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that he gets better by being a soldier. That's that's right. something weird. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a little ironic. Exactly. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything else to talk about, about about the book, or should we move on to the movie? No, for the book, I'm fine. I guess we can talk a bit about the raid itself when we talk of it in the movie. Right. Yeah, and I I do want to you know to let you let your inner historian out if you want to um, talk about the the firebombing or the origins of the war. Um, I mean, the origins of the war would be a long thing, but the bombing itself is uh, a very interesting event uh, in the sense that it's. It was part of a strategy, if you will, of the Allies, but it was mm-hmm. probably the most controversial ones, one, and it proved mm-hmm. to be totally ineffective. Basically, if I can take just a minute to explain, um, yeah, please. You have two ways of bombing a country into submission. You either do precision bombing, you destroy factories and stuff like that, and right. roads, or you carpet bomb and you want to kill, you know, kill as much as many people as you can and, until they submit. Uh, and these two visions, if you will, were uh, present in the RAF I command. And there's a man's name that you should know is Arthur Harris. Uh, he was the commander of the RAF bombing uh, forces. Uh, his nickname is Bomber Harris. 
mm. and he was codenamed <laughs> by his own man, Butcher Harris, because mm. they felt that he did not care about the lives of his own men. Even though he said that the I do not personally regard the whole of the remaining cities of Germany as, uh, as worth the bones of one British grenadier. So that mm. gives you the state of mind of this man. He wanted basically to erase Germany. Uh, he thought that by destroying everything in their civilization, they would at some point say, okay, we, we, let's stop this, we surrender. Right. And it mm-hmm. did exactly the opposite. Uh, you know, the Germans were not bombed into submission. The, if anything, it made them want to fight even more because they were afraid, okay, who are these, uh, you know, uh, people that are bombing or cities for the sake mm-hmm. of it. In Dresden is a perfect example. There are no military restoration there. Uh, there are no factories. Right. Um, the only thing they were doing was some kind of, that's actually in the book, some kind of syrup for uh, new mothers, <laughs> like a vitamin syrup. Right. Um, <laughs> they don't, there is no point in bombing such a city, just it is an important city for Germany, but culturally, you know, it's a medieval city. Mm-hmm. Uh, for ho- the whole Europe, it's important, not just Germany. And destroying this makes absolutely no sense. Um, and it proves that cruelty knows no side <laughs> you know you, yeah. even though you're fighting nazis it doesn't excuse yourself from you know for the bad things you're doing right. and just right. um the in the bombing itself uh, happened in mid february 1945 mm-hmm. at that point the allies are about to cross the rhine and the uh, in the west and the soviets are about uh, to enter germany in the east so basically everybody knows at that point the war is coming to an end in the next few weeks uh, yeah. There is no point in destroying for the sake of it, and yet they do it. Uh, Churchill did express regret about that after the war, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, mm-hmm. not Harris. <laughs> uh, he, <laughs> he did not. And just to conclude, the, the bombing itself was three waves: two waves of uh, RAF bombers during the night. First one with explosives, so that basically destroys everything, and then. Incendiary bombs. That's not very shown in the movie or in the book because it's basically underground the, the whole time. But right. imagine a city that is destroyed. It's it's an old city, so you know small streets, building very close together. You saw right. a lot of rubble, so you cannot walk around, and then you throw fire on it. Right. So basically, yeah. it, make, it makes all these small, very uh, high temperature, like small ho- ovens everywhere, and temperature goes to a thousand degrees Celsius, uh, and it's a complete mayhem. And the next morning, the US uh, US AF came in to finish the job with 300 more uh, bombers, B-17s, mm. uh, and so in total, it's about uh, 1,500 tons of explosive and almost the same in incendiaries just during the night uh, on a city yeah. of half a million people. And you have at least that many people, if not more, as refugees that were around the city. So right. that's why we don't really know how many people died in that bomb, in that raid. Mm. Uh, you'll, you'll see numbers from 25,000 to 150,000. Uh, mm. The rate is somewhere in between, uh, but there are no precise records because the German authorities had no idea how many people were there at the time. And so many bodies were just uh, completely burned. There were no traces, you know, completely disintegrated that they had a hard time. Plus, you know, it's right at the time where Germany was in complete chaos as a whole. So, uh, right. you, you, everything adds up so that we don't really know how many people died. But we know that it was a senseless attack. Uh, that is uh, something, a shame for the Allies uh, to this day. Mm-hmm. And it was not discussed for at least 15, 20 days by academics. It was like, it was a taboo subject for a long time. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's not the kind of thing that you, at least in American schools, that we typically learn. 
Mm. I think it, you know, it might be mentioned in passing, nope. but um, but yeah. I don't remember learning about it in in my high school history class. Yeah, it makes sense. Like they, no country likes yeah, to brag it's about. Definitely that. not emphasized. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. I mean, you know, we learn about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, part of that is that it was the end of the war. Yeah, and to be completely fair, it's actually if you're a we, if you have a very cold look at it. They made more sense these bombings than Dresden bombing, yes. uh, in a purely tactical point of view, if you will. They, they did some, they did accomplish something uh, as horrible as they were. This accomplished yeah. absolutely nothing except killing people and destroying a beautiful city. Yeah, James, have you been to uh, Japan? Yes. Okay. I've been to Hiroshima. Yeah. And okay. Nagasaki. Yeah. Yeah. We we went <laughs> yeah. there in uh, in 2000. It was a very somber mm-hmm. place. Did you go to the A bomb memorial or the museum? Yep. Yeah, and the Peace Park, I think it was also in Nagasaki. Uh, yeah, yeah, in Nagasaki, where they have like the thousand cranes or something like that, mm-hmm. which is really cool, actually. Yeah, 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 very cool. But very, very freaking sad. Yeah, very. <laughs> I was like, ah, yeah. somber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a quiet, a quiet place. It's not like it's bustling with uh, people right, talking. Right, right, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. and also the. Uh, Holocaust Museum in Berlin is like that too. Mm, I haven't been. I don't know if you if you haven't been there. Yeah, nope. they they actually constructed it in such a way that you descend into the museum, mm. and by the time you get to the center of the whole construct, uh, you are completely surrounded by black, mm. and it's 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 very quiet because there's just no way sound gets into where you are. Yeah, and it's and it's all reflective too. It's all like. Um, I mean, it looks like obsidian, so it's probably not obsidian, but right. that kind of feel. You're like in an obsidian room at that point. Hmm. It's, it's it's very well put together. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, and it with that sp- with that specific purpose of creating that environment for you, to to kind of force you to reflect on the atrocities of World War II. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, well, we've uh, we've gotten to a pretty downer place here. Um, <laughs> yeah, this, How do we get out of this? Discussing the war is not always a funny subject, but it is essential for that. Yeah, for it, that it sure is. Uh, yeah, and I really appreciate your um, not lecture there, but uh, but the information that was that was great. Yeah, I tried to make sure I could talk yeah. about this for like three hours in a row, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, can yeah. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't we uh, shift into talking about the movie? Sure. Um, I actually did not write down who the cast is. I just know that uh, Montana Wild Wildhack was played by uh, Miss Tessmacher from their first Superman movie. Oh, oh, really? <laughs> um, so I knew knew her from that. Um, well, I do remember you misidentifying a bunch of actors uh, oh, while we were watching the that's movie. Right. I, I saw, um, <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> oh, what, what, what's the guy's name? Um, the bat, the guy who played, voices Batman in Batman the Animated Series. Oh, I know him. Um, Kevin Kevin Conroy. Yeah, Kevin Conroy. Yeah, There's yeah. a different Kevin Conroy in the movie. <laughs> oh yeah. So. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I love Kevin so Conroy. Um, <laughs> the the one actor I actually did recognize was the guy who played the English officer who kind of gave the speech about taking care of yourself. Um, he was the mm-hmm. the professor guy from War Games and the. Uh, oh really? Yeah, and the, the bishop <laughs> nice. in Lady Hawk, John Wood. For some reason, when I was like see him. Uh, and also on his, his picture on IMDb is fantastic. I think of a modern major general. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about Pirates right. Pirates of Penzance. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But even the lead actor, Michael Sachs, I never saw him before. <laughs> It'll be a plug No. Right. Well, what did we think of the movie? What about you, Emmanuel? 
Uh, you know, it it was for me a very, I would say, typical 1970s movie in the way it was shot. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I did find it entertaining, but with highs and lows. Uh, mm-hmm. As I said, I love the scene when the, the car accident with the wife in the middle. To, to me, that's the high... Uh, the height of the movie. Um, yes. <laughs> the the parts in Germany were interesting because at least I think they hired German actors to play German people, mm-hmm. which is not that common in American movies at the time. Uh, but and you get the you get the ambience. They got the ambience right. Like yeah, the you get the right. how it felt when they were there. The first part also in the Battle of the Bulge when they get captured. It was mm-hmm. it was well done. I think low scale but well done. Uh, that was shot in Minnesota, by the way. Yeah, but anyway, snow is snow. Is snow. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was flat, like like Belgium is. Um, so I, I enjoyed it. I would say I I did not love it, but I, f- I found it was a smart adaptation. You know, they they kept the yeah. important stuff and they made it in a way that was easier for a viewer to understand without becoming dumb. You know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, I did like it in you know globally. Yeah. yeah. What about you, James? I like the uh, typewriter exposition. <laughs> oh yeah, in the in the beginning of the movie, I thought that was fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like better than the the ominous voiceover that you are famously known for hating. Right. <laughs> so. I I was thinking I was expecting there to be a lot of voiceover in this one. Right. Yeah. Me me too. And then I saw them doing the typewriter thing. Yeah. It's it's funny because at first I wasn't really paying attention to the typewriter and what he was writing mm-hmm. until I started noticing that it was actually narrative. And I was like, "Oh, I bet Seth will like this." Yeah, <laughs> or at least appreciate it over the, over the uh, voiceover. Um, yeah. So I, I, I actually enjoyed that part. Mm-hmm. I thought it was clever, uh, clever use of narrative. Um, and then, of course, the, <laughs> the wife dying car scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a little over the top, but it was super exactly. But it, it, it worked <laughs> perfectly in the movie. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I think my favorite character though in the in the whole movie was probably the dog, the beetle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was trying to figure out what breeds of dog uh, played the various ages um, because obviously I swear it was a beagle as a puppy. It looked like a be- it looks like a beagle. I think it was some uh, kind of a terrier, but but by the end uh, it was a different. It seemed to be a different breed altogether. It definitely and by the end it was yeah. a different. Yeah. yeah. But my favorite part was like, "Where's mommy?" And then goes over and pees on her foot. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> like nice. <Yeah. laughs> and uh, and I also enjoyed some of the transitions too. When he gets uh, when he gets, I want to say tucked away because we've been watching the haunting of Blind Manor, but uh, unstuck in time, mm-hmm. right? Or particularly the one where he's eating that bowl of soup in the constant or not concentration camp, prison camp. Mm-hmm. And he just uh, like falls over, mm-hmm. and then it transitions to him in, I think it was Trafalgar at that point. I uh, think so too. Yes, or somewhere else anyway. Yeah, uh, I, I thought I like I like those. I appreciate those kind of transitions in in movies and shows. Yeah, yeah, they did not overdo it with effects that made no sense. It's just boom, you're there, you know. So yeah. right, that yeah. I appreciate. Yeah. I, I was worried when I first started the movie. Okay, is it going to be? Those nineteen seventy movies with you know the image rolls over <laughs> and then you get to yes, wherever they want exactly. to bring you. I was happy not to uh, see that. Yeah, I really liked I really liked the the way they handle transitions in the movie, and I'll say I really enjoyed the movie. I feel like it's impossible to capture the voice of the story or of, of the book in a movie format, um, mm-hmm. and so that's why I thought there would probably be voiceover to try to capture that, and I'm not sure it would have worked. Um, my favorite mm-hmm. transition was. 
the way it 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 went from her crashing the car and dying to him giving her the car um and then the uh-huh. uh, the transition from having the new car and the horn the horn honking and then it immediately transitioned to quiet hospital zone um which i thought was yeah. was interesting Actually, uh, since you bring up that part, mm-hmm. when it did transition to him giving her the car, I had actually thought they weren't going to kill her off in the movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> At that oh. point. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was like, oh, man. Because, um, so, uh, let's see. I was watching it with Emily. So she watched the movie but didn't read the book. Right. And so I, wasn't, I didn't want to spoil it for her that the wife is going to die the way she dies. Yeah. Uh, and... Because I was, I was about to say, oh, this is the part where she dies. But I'm like, okay, I don't want to say that because I don't want to ruin her for Emily. Right. And then when she didn't die right away, I thought they weren't going to kill her in the movie. Right. And I was like, oh, they screwed up the adaptation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, I didn't realize until I went back and, and um, I think in reading the graphic novel, I found out I, I had remembered that she had died in a car crash. Where, in fact, like the first crash she's in damages the car mm-hmm. and starts leaking exactly. carbon mon- right, monoxide right. is. Yeah. And so she ends up crashing the car because she's already succumbed to the carbon monoxide. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. And one thing I think they nailed in the movie is the uniform of the American, the pro-Nazi American. That's a fantastic design. Oh, yeah. That was fantastic. <laughs> that uniform was fantastic. Yeah. What was that Captain guy's name? It was, some, it was Campbell, right? Uh, the character, I mean? Uh, something like that. Howard W. Campbell. And I was wondering if that was a reference to John W. Campbell. But this so. character is interesting because it's like the embodiment of everything... Fonogut is trying to denounce in his, in his, uh, right. in his novel. Like He's completely... It makes no sense whatsoever. Like, why would an American, uh, you know, right. fight for German for Nazi Germany? And uh, because he, he feels a right for their ideology, so it's everything that is wrong to him is right, and he tries to convince people. And I think it's it's very interesting in both the movie and the novel. But it's very well made in the movie. The actor is very good, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, these days he would be carrying a tiki torch in Charlottesville. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. He was very for, for me that Captain White that embodiment kind of. Uh, Reminded me of how Hitler actually modeled a lot of his stuff on how Americans treated Native Americans yeah. back in the day, and and uh, I mean not even Na- I mean Native Americans way back when, but also even the uh, eugenics programs and things like that. Yeah, in the early what late 1800s, early 1900s, mm. you know Hitler modeled a lot of the way that he chose to treat Jews and uh, Gypsies and Romas and all that. Uh, <laughs> off of the things that we did to our own people. Yeah. yeah. And so that that's that's what he reminded me of in both the book and the movie and it it did actually kind of anger me. I'm like, God yeah. I, every time I read about that kind of stuff, I'm like, American I don't know, yeah, no, it's a blight in our history, in my opinion. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If we can reassure you we have yeah. the same kind of stories here in Canada. So maybe not yeah. on the same scale because we have less people, but you know <laughs> you're not the only one guilty of such thing. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Not that it's any better, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I should mention, in terms of content warning, the the movie does have a few scenes of nudity mm. in it. Um, um, Colin's never a fan of that. Um, it, to me, like the scene when they go to the drive-in and and see the mm-hmm. it, the boy and his dog, they would have called it a real oh, yeah. hairy movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> That that like was to me the way to show what sort of actress Montana was. 
And I was talking mm-hmm. to Colin about this, and he didn't necessarily agree mm-hmm. that a name like Montana Wildhack was definitely an adult film star. Um, but that was always the way I read it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I did kind of expect the uh, well. As I say, because in the in the book they they get transported to uh, um <laughs> naked, right? Yeah. So, so I was wondering if they were actually going to do that somehow in the movie, and they were just going to be straight up naked on Trollfamador in the yeah. in the zoo, and they didn't for him, but they did for her. <laughs> yeah, strangely enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, shocking. And I find, and I don't think it's made exactly the same way in the movie, but in the book, basically she she gets there, she's freaked out. And he basically gives her his shirt so she can dress it. Her. It's like, oh, you're so nice. Let's have sex now. You know, it's basically how how deep that relationship <laughs> is. Right. Uh, and in the movie, you it's it's not been exactly the same way, I think, but it has the same kind of feeling that, yeah. you know, she's just there to be with him in bed, and that's about it. You know, as I said, she's a plot device, like most female characters are in that, mm-hmm. that story. I was but just gonna say, it goes back to what you were saying, Emmanuel, about uh, the female characters. <laughs> And this whole in the whole thing where they're just very one dimensional and superficial. Exactly. In seventies, I guess you could get away with that. If we were to do the same movie today, yeah. Even if it was an adaptation of this work, you'd we'd have to adapt some of those ideas, maybe to right. <laughs> modernize them. <laughs> I guess. I hope so. I will say that um, to this movie's credit, it it didn't really hold your hand too much about the being unstuck in time. Other than mm-hmm. that typing exposition at the beginning, but it was to the point that my wife was kind of like, "I don't know what happened in that movie." <laughs> I would say that I probably would have liked the movie less if I hadn't read the novel before. I think they yeah. go well hand in hand, but it would be a nice experience to go back in time <laughs> and watch the movie before. <laughs> right. Actually, just to see if I would enjoy it as Obliviate. much. Um, what did Emily think of the movie? Yeah, she actually thought it wasn't. It was one of our better movies, okay. in her opinion. The, do- the dog was still her favorite character. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but she actually, I think, she, I would say she liked the movie. She thought it was pretty decent. Okay. You know, we didn't we didn't stop in the middle of watching it, so. <laughs> right. I have right. one nitpick about, however, the, the adaptation. In the plane crash, when it's about to happen, uh, he tries to raise the alarm. He cries, we're right. going to crash. Uh, this doesn't happen in the novel. And that's one small, it's a small thing, but it's like, I don't know if it's for better or worse, but it did, you know, I noticed it and it was, you know, I found it weird. Yeah. That they, why would they add that? They don't need to add that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I didn't see the point in him trying to do mm-hmm. that, give, given his already altered view. Right. Um, as a, exactly. Trafalmadorian. But I think in the movie chronology, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that he didn't get taken away to Trafalmador until after that. I think you're right. Because because he didn't get he didn't oh, go damn. to Trafalgar yeah, until right. after his wife died. Yes, yes, you're right. He's um, with the dog and, in the so, in the yeah yeah yeah. So uh, he didn't yet have the no no no, no 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 in the in towards the beginning of the movie we got introduced to Montana whatever her, that her last name was very early yes yeah 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 but it was later in his life. I mean, well, yeah. No 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 well, no. You're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, you're, you're thinking too linearly. Seth? You're right. He gets adapted <laughs> right after the the scene when the dog peed on the on his wife's feet. Uh, mm-hmm. He goes in the backyard and he gets abducted, and that's actually before the plane crash. Okay, yeah. so I remembered that he saw the UFO at one point, mm-hmm. but that wasn't when mm-hmm. he was uh, abducted. It was the second time. 
So I, I, well, I'll have to give it a rewatch. But I, I thought the chronology was different, and that's why like he hadn't taken on board the Trifalmadorian philosophy yet. And so that's mm-hmm. why he was trying to well, change Well, there it. is no chronology. Time, time is, you know, an illusion. <laughs> yes. Uh, anything else we want to talk about? Um, the movie, uh, I mean, it is, to me, a very faithful adaptation. So by covering the yeah. book, we did cover most of the movie, <laughs> I think. The, the one thing I didn't get from the movie that was more, mm, I guess, explained in the book. Uh, so like, take the Battle of Ultra, for instance. Mm-hmm. In the in the book, we we he it's very plainly told that he gets captured during the Battle of Ultra. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't get that at all in the movie. I don't know. I it's think, the snow uh, and tanks. It's the but, Battle of the yeah. Bulge. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's the only battle ever fought in snow, ever. <laughs> it, it could be just production reason. They could not maybe just enact a whole Battle of the Bulge sure, sure, thing. Yeah. Right. So let's just put four guys in uniform in the snow and call it a day. Right. Yep. Well, it probably would have caused them to have more voiceover narrative that Seth hates uh, yeah. <laughs> to try and pull that off. Maybe. So it's okay. I think I think it's okay that they didn't do it. I was yeah. just, it was something I, I noticed, I suppose. Yeah, it didn't matter what the situation in the war was, other right. than it was right. winding so, down, that it yeah. was toward the end of the war. Because hmm. yeah, as, as I mentioned earlier, it does uh, matter for the importance of the rage itself, that it was at the end right. of the war. Mm-hmm. It, it made even less sense to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that, like what the reason behind the bombing was and how that couldn't possibly make sense at that point in the war. Other than right. like you I, I kinda looked at it as is this the the British getting back at them for the Blitz? There's some of that. Yeah. Uh there is revenge, very revenge. Yeah. Uh, and I could understand That's it what I've you know heard about even it. if I don't appreciate it, but I can understand why you would feel that. Uh, and another movie could concentrate on the inner conflicts of the British about it, because they did have conflicts about it. Uh, yeah. But, you know, uh, it, when you're a external point of view, it's like, yeah, but it doesn't, whatever you suffer doesn't excuse what you do. Yeah, uh, You have to, you know, you're responsible for your actions, basically, even though the movie and the story as a whole thing about free will that could contradict that. But. <laughs> right. Well, but I think, I think that is, I mean, that, that's a good point in that I think in laying out the idea that it's deterministic, it, mm-hmm. it brings it back to the fact that we don't think that it is, that we, we, we believe yeah. in free will very strongly. And since we have it, we should use it to do good. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Colin did say to me that he thought that the movie was a good adaptation of the book. He just, uh, didn't like either of them, so <laughs> <laughs> that is crappy. That's good credit appreciation. Thank you. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I won't. I won't tell you the analogy he used. Okay, <laughs> I can guess. <laughs> well, cool. Um, uh, how about we rank them? Emmanuel, you want to go first? I would say book movie. Okay. Well, see, you're you're picking up the call-in part just fine. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I did like them both, but book movie. Yeah. What about you, James? Yeah, I, th- I think book movie because I I feel like there was more content in the book that I I enjoyed. Yeah, uh, and and learned about you know the war and and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So book movie. Yep, book movie for me as well. Um, yeah, like this was my third time reading it. I'll probably read it again at some point down the line. Um, it is one that I enjoy. It you know it took some time to settle it into my brain is something that I actually enjoyed. Um, it was really the second mm-hmm. read that I really enjoyed. So, 
but it is a quick read, so you know it's easy it to grab it one day and yeah, it was yeah, just yeah, well, and kind of by the very nature of it too, like you don't have to think about well, I need to concentrate on reading this over the next three days or I'll lose the thread of it. Like you're you're never catching the thread of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's no thread. <laughs> it's an illusion. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, uh, we'll figure out what we're going to do next at some point offline, and in all likelihood, um, that'll be a discussion. But uh, Emmanuel, I want to really thank you for um, volunteering yourself to to guest on the podcast and uh, pick an interesting book. Yeah. Well, it's my my thank pleasure. Uh, actually, I'm very grateful that you got back to me so quickly and that we could set this up. Um, yeah. And if you want, I I do have a small blessing for you uh, in French, actually, if you want. Oh, yeah. Um, Sounds good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Please. Puisse la route vous être clémente et votre futur au bon endroit, which means may the road be nice to you and your future always in the right place. <laughs> Very nice. I love it. <laughs> Basically translated. Very beautiful. Thank That's you. awesome. That gets me off the hook for for putting a blessing in. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, cool. This was this was really good. So thanks again, and we'll oh, talk thank to you, you. Thank you later. Bye. Uh, sure. Ciao. Bye bye.